You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to episode 50 of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr Mick Pope. In this episode, I continue my discussion from last week with Waka Waka Woman, Aboriginal spokesperson and CEO of Common Grace, Brooke Prentice, on all things season of creation, uh, Aboriginal uh, reconciliation uh, in this country, uh, issues to do with theology and so on. It's a fascinating and wide-ranging discussion. I'm really, really excited about it, and I hope you are too. So here's, uh, without further ado, here's part two. I'm hearing huge resonances between what you're saying and the book of Leviticus, believe it or not. Um, it's uh, And it, it highlights to me, and that, that I've just segued myself into my next comment. So I was on a panel recently with um, uh, a Fijian pastor and another white person, uh, uh, Jess Morthup, who I've got to have on the program. And uh, Uncle Ray yes, was chairing. Um, so Jess is fantastic. I've known her for a number of years now. Um, and I said in the session, I thought that, I say these things, and I probably don't think the full implications thereof, that all theology should be post-colonial. It makes sense, particularly in a colonised land. Uh, And yet Uncle Ray was clear that that hadn't happened yet. Um, And we've talked about this a little bit before. Maybe now is the time to talk about the importance of um, more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in theological education and important roles. (sighs) Why is the church so colonised, even more so than other parts of society? Why the church? Why are we so stuck on our whiteness and the, net, the settler narrative and all the other things? Why have we, we soaked that up in almost a Babylonian captivity? Well, it's part of your identity. And so uh, it's an identity that's been brought to these lands now called Australia. It's an identity that is based on ownership and greed and um, not surrendering to creator Uh and that's where, you know, your Western worldview comes into mm. conflict with the Indigenous worldview. Uh, but there's still hope to learn. Um, we've been learning the Western ways uh, 250 years here in Australia and longer around the world. Uh, so we've learned your ways, but when do you come and learn our ways? Um, and when you look at some of those original interactions at the point of colonisation in Australia, there were key things that could have shaped a different uh, future and respects for Aboriginal peoples, a love for Aboriginal peoples, a learning and being led by Aboriginal peoples. Um, Uncle Pastor Ray Minicon is exactly right. One of the things I say is post-colonial is only an academic aspiration, not a lived reality. Uh, we're still, when you look at all of the injustices, this is colonisation here today. We're not post it, we're in it. Um, And so, uh, and then, you know, people are talking about decolonizing. Um, I originally did talk a lot about decolonizing, but I thought that would be Aboriginal peoples leading that because 
we know what it means like pre-colonial uh, and then what colonialism, um, colonization has done. Uh, but I often see non-Indigenous and particularly white people trying to lead decolonization practices. And I'm like, hang on, that actually doesn't work <laughs> um, because you've uh, been implicit in the colonization. And so you often can't see what you've actually created and done. Um, but we've had to live it and we saw what was here before and how it changed and what we're still trying to hold to today as part of our cultures um, that are pre-colonial because that does exist. And why hasn't it happened? Um, you know, I talked about those things before and when you actually look at how Australia was colonised and even the history of mission here in Australia and the world, so, you know, colonisation happening 1770, 17. 88, your first actual, whilst there was a chaplain on the first fleet in 1788, your first actual missionaries aren't coming till the early um, uh, kind of 1830s. That's 50 years after colonization. So whilst this Christianization and colonization, and I encourage people to look at the doctrine of discovery and uncle pastor Ray Minicon is much better on doctrine of discovery than I am. But I have some uh, very good uh, friends, Chumash, um, so Native American of California, and learnt the uh, kind of colonial history of um, California. And you had the Spanish came um, like 500 years ago. Uh, but they actually came to missionize um, and they did come as missionaries. And then, you know, the other impacts of colonization came later. And so one of the things when I was speaking at a conference in the United States of America was. Um, that I pointed that out to people that, you know, that was 500 years ago and here we are 250 years ago. I always thought the colonisers hadn't learnt and so, you know, we're repeating the mistakes with Indigenous peoples and by mistakes I mean our murder, our genocide, the destruction of the environment. Um, but they had learnt um, and that was the rapid uh, destruction of the environment, ecological systems and us as peoples. Um, and so you know, this is where we need to really understand our true history. And uh, I encourage people in, I, it's Dr. Meredith Lake's book, The Bible in Australia. It's page uh, 56 of her book, The Bible in Australia. And she records this interesting, well, I think it's fascinating, but it's one of these things that could have been different. It's between uh, the missionary anthropologist, George Taplin, um, and uh, an Aboriginal man, and um, they're talking about the Bible and what's happening. And um, I encourage people to really look at that story, to look at it as Aboriginal eyes, because the Aboriginal man is seeing these people who are Christians um, destroying the environment, murdering our peoples, and yet being told that our cultures are evil and our God is evil. And the Aboriginal man's trying to say, um, and that we can only have the Jesus in the Bible. And we're like, we already have the story of Jesus in our lands, the story of the creator. Why won't you listen to us? And how can you murder and steal and destroy? Uh, those aren't part of our culture. So, you know, um, uh, to look at that story and it's a record of the interaction. Auntie Dr. Anne Patel Gray also um, documented it many years ago in her book, um, The Great White Flood, uh, which looked at racism in the church um, and society here in Australia. And so um, she goes into a much more extended version than um, the Bible in Australia, but both are uh, important. Mm. Lots to, yeah, a lot of... I, 
I'm, I'm fascinated by the thought that um, you almost get stuck with it and I get stuck with it as a, as, as a white person living here and all the history that's unfolded and, and feeling implicated insofar as well. You know, Europeans had come here, then my folks would have come here at 10 pound palms, then I wouldn't be here kind of thing. So you're just part of that history unavoidably. But the, the thought that there is um, an alternate history uh, that it could have worked out differently. And it, because, you know, oftentimes I run in my head, well, perhaps if justice had been done and Terra Nullius and uh, Doctor of Discovery had been uncovered and turned over early, then we'd have all gone home or they'd have all gone home. Do you know what I mean? And, and things would look very different, but then I'm not here. And it's just, um, I don't think I'm articulating it particularly well, but it's just, I'm just, it is, to be white in this country is to be part of, well, I think the, the metaphor of a flood is, is, is helpful because it's mm. just, you know, and we're all washed away along with it. And how do we kind of ground ourselves so that, 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 uh, that flood, that tide is no longer driving history, but we can, divert the course of the river to mix my metaphors a little bit uh, and, yep. and go on a different path. Yeah. Which is that renewing. And, you know, we uh, haven't given up as Aboriginal peoples. We're still seeking that right relationship. Um, and so there is a deep appeal to do it together. Let us lead. So it is a, a different posture. Um, but I really believe the time is now. And I think even you articulating that, I think our non-Indigenous brothers and sisters can feel it when you tune in. You're ready. You can feel it and you're ready. And mm. so uh, we just have to take those next steps to actually um, uh, not just do the renewing, but see it through to renewal. Well, let's get on to the renewal then. Um, one of the key texts in the Seasons Creation Celebration Guide, which you can download, uh, is Genesis 2.15. And this is largely NRSV with some slight additions. So Genesis 2.15 reads, Yahweh God took the Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. Now, I use the definite article here because at this point, Adam means human. Uh, and I'm trying to capture a pun in the Hebrew, which is in English is humans from the humus. Um, <laughs> And, and even getting engaging in that exercise, and I don't know what that looks like in, um, I can call them dreaming stories. I don't know that there's a problem with a dream time uh, as, as a phrase, but it, it's something that we need to, to re-grasp. And I spent a lot of time thinking about this in my, my master's about how we're, I think Norm Harbel talks about earth beings um, mm -hmm. to pick up on this because you, you see that it's not just the humans are created out of the earth, but it's the trees and it's the other wild animals that uh, God brings to the Adam and, and so on. Um, but the first thing about this verse is the deliberateness of the placing. So the Adam uh, and then later on the Eve, the Eve, the woman is made out of him, uh, is formed from the, the, the dust of the earth and then placed into this particular context, this garden or forest or amongst these trees. Um, it reminds me very much too of Acts 17 and Paul's statement, mm -hmm. which reads, from one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth. And he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. So there's a couple of ways to reflect upon this. I wonder if you could reflect upon this, um, uh, what we can learn from millennia of care for country yeah. and not just as land care practices, as we might think about it in a Western way, cultural burning or um, harvesting native grains rather than imported wheat, but as obedience to a divine command. And how you, you, I mean, you've touched upon this a little bit already in terms of yeah. having 
the gospel or the proto-gospel or, mm. or as one, um, I remember Mark Brett raised this in a talk, um, uh, an Anglican minister in Australia who was also an anthropologist saying that the, the Dreamtime stories, the law, L-A-W and L-O-R-E, were the Old Testament for Aboriginal peoples. Mm. Yeah, so um, there's lots to unpack there. I think... Um, uh, interesting that you talk about Acts 17 and as we talked about those 300 nations of Aboriginal peoples, uh, I always get a bit fascinated by people who ask me, so how did you decide where the boundaries of the nations were? And I'm like, what are they talking about? Um, because we believe the creator created those boundaries. And so where it says in Acts 17 um, about the boundaries, like create a place those there for us. And they're actually embedded in the landscape. They're mm. often rivers or mountain ranges or uh, different elements of creation that separate our nations of peoples. And we didn't just stick to our one nation. We would travel across other nations um, and uh, have very large celebrations of gatherings of many nations uh, together, um, uh, as well as trade and, and all of those things. And so you mentioned about the dreaming. Uh, the dreaming, again, like Aboriginal, is not mm. our word. Um, and it was developed by white male anthropologists and it was called the dream time. So dreaming is better because dream time suggests something in the past, whereas our dreaming is um, past, present and future and it's continual. And it goes in that cyclical nature, which is also part of our Indigenous worldview, as opposed to a Western worldview, which is often linear in nature. And uh, the dreaming is what I've articulated before, that it teaches you those three things, who the creator is, how to care for creation and how to live in right relationship, which for me are also, and I have this in a couple of my theological papers, for me, uh, our three biblical mandates uh, as well as Christians. Um, so there's great resonance there between the two. Um, I think... Uh, yeah, there's some very interesting uh, aspects of Genesis 2.15 and you mentioned Norm Harbel. Uh, he has been a great teacher for me in this area, as has uh, Ani Dr. Anne Patel-Gray, um, Ani uh, Reverend Dr. Denise Champion, um, and we were able to get together and we were actually looking at, did a project looking at Genesis and uh, what does that mean um, as we read it with Aboriginal eyes, as Uncle Reverend Graham Paulson um, called us to many years ago. And so we've still got a long way to go. We've already talked about the lack of Aboriginal peoples in our theological colleges and to sit down and, and yarn about this together. I think a fascinating for thing for people to understand is when we did get together as Aboriginal theologians to look at Genesis, we realised uh, that we could not name one Aboriginal Christian leader slash theologian who actually knows Hebrew um, and has studied Hebrew. And so that was one thing us as younger ones definitely wanted to see because the English gives you such a distorted view of what's actually happening. Um, and so my, my Hebrew is limited to the few words that I've actually learned in Genesis. And so, uh, you know, even when you look at this translation and the Garden of Eden, we looked at it as the forest um, and uh, the trees, and that gives you a different sense of country. Garden seems like this very colonial type term um, to till it and to keep it. And uh, that keep is the Shema, the preserve. Mm. Um, and uh, Norm Harbour, we affectionately as Aboriginal peoples call him Uncle Norm because of the great work he has done with our peoples and in theology. And, you know, a dear friend of his was our amazing Aboriginal Christian leader, Pastor 
um, George Rosendale and Pastor George um, told Uncle Norm that uh, when he heard that word, um, that verb Shema, he heard it as guard or protect. Uh, and that's very much, you know, we believe we're appointed by creator as custodians, caretakers, stewards. And I know different people have different interpretations of that. But for us, it's it's not to keep it it is to be one with it it's a special relationship between human and the rest of creation um but uh you know it's it's equally that we're all part of country and how we um look to be part of country and so for me that's genesis 2 15 is saying we're part of country but we have a special role in country and um yeah to be part of it together Is, um, I might interject a bit of my master's research here and I'd be interesting to hear you reflect on how you think it might align. But when Abad and Shema, these two Hebrew words are used together elsewhere outside of Genesis 2, they're used in, in the context of the tabernacle. And um, there's a genuine sense when you look at that that um, to serve Abad is used not just of the needs of the, the people of Israel or, or of God, but also of the elements of the tabernacle, the furnishings and so on. Mm. And so I start to see um, a recognition in the Hebrew Bible that has been obscured by a, a modern Western mindset mm. of, um, well, I think um, Uncle Graham Paulson, a paper, he says the original um belief for one of a better way of putting it is essentially animistic and i can't and you know i've uh, been reading about panpsychism of late and so on and, and starting to see that in the hebrew bible the recognition of um oh how, how to put it it was certainly our kinship with the non-human but also the um that we we in God's service, we serve uh, other things, whether it's the it's the, the garden itself or the forest, however, however you want to describe it, which parallels that which happens in the sanctuary of serving the elements of the, the tabernacle all with the same goal. Mm. And that's that all creation be truly and fruitfully itself to give its recognition to the creator, whether it's a human being or a um, the earth itself, which Leviticus talks a lot about, the, the literal earth, the arets, which is the same word used of the land of Israel uh, and of the earth uh, or the inhabitants thereof. So uh, wondering, reflect, I'm not expressing this well, um, reflect upon the idea that um, caring for country um, is allowing country to be truly itself, that it's a true act of worship and devotion of the creator. And if we can see these things kind of line up, then, you know, um, I guess what I'm saying is it comes back to what you're saying earlier about allowing original people to, to lead, to help us learn to read the Bible, more, the, the Hebrew Bible, more along the lines of that which it was written. So mm. I was mm. saying Aboriginal people are probably closer to the Hebrews than we are mm. um, in understanding these things about the text. Mm. That was a long rambling statement, but 
I'm sure you'll do something good with it. <laughs> no, sounds good. Um, and I think, you know, I talked before about, um, you know, we didn't name our nations either. That came from the creator. Mm. And, you know, when it, you even think about the different elements of creation, so uh, one that I've been talking about recently is around our rivers. Um, creator gave us the name for each of those rivers. Um, we didn't name it and it's a very western thing to name and to rename right so you know there's a big river here in um these lands now called sydney called cook's river you go down to the sutherland shire and everything is named after cook um but those things had names that were given by the creator and so there's a deep respect for the creator that that is who we ultimately learn from as aboriginal peoples and whether you're christian or non-christian um unless you're not walking in your culture and part of community, uh, then you believe in the creator um, uh, who created all things. And so I think there's actually a humbling, um, uh, you know, I, I won't discriminate between Aboriginal peoples and non-Aboriginal peoples, but, you know, it's part of our culture as Aboriginal peoples. So a humbling and a humility to the creator that non-Indigenous peoples actually need to bring. Um, to then have respect for the creator and all of creation. And so, cause we know all of those things came from the creator that he placed the birds where they are and the animals where they are. And I often talk about um, what's now called the Yarra river, which it's uh, name is the Birrarung. And uh, today you look at it and it's polluted and um, you know, you wouldn't even put your foot in it as it runs through the center of Nam of Melbourne mm-hmm. And uh, but for thousands of years, it sustained life for humans and for all of creation. And you look at that river today and you see the seagulls. They're not the birds that belong on the Birrarung. The birds that belong on the Birrarung are actually the emu. That's who the creator placed there in the centre of what we now know as Melbourne was the emu. But if people saw emu walking through Melbourne today, their minds would be blown. You have just blown uh, my mind. <laughs> um, I mean, it. it- there's just, you just get so ha- uh, habituated to certain things. So I used to work in Docklands uh, mm. and there's the the eagle um, whose name I always forget, the big statue of the eagle. And um, hearing someone say, and it was at a welcome to country and it was, oh, I can see a face and I've, she's done a number of um, welcome to countries that have been a part of, I had them organised for work and whatnot. Um, Auntie Dyker. Yes, Dyker with mm-hmm. a hip possum um, pelt cloak. across the shoulders cloak. Um, that, you know, Aboriginal people used to, to meet around there. And I know it's it's blindingly obvious, but when you've walked around the city and all you see is the built-up infrastructure, to recognise when... You, and this was part of the scare tactic, actually, many years ago about, um, about land rights. Oh, they're going to come mm-hmm. for your backyard. They're going to come mm-hmm. for the city. Well... I guess they're entitled to it because you might say, oh, well, the bush, I can understand that. But in the middle of the city, well, before we paved it, is this one of those yep. kind of penny drop moments that kind of like the, the the light floods in and you think, oh, dear, there's no getting away from the injustices and the dispossession anywhere you go, regardless of what, what is there. That's just a, um, and you often talk about this, don't you? Um, mm. uh, when it, that what was it, the campaign last year or the year before about taking photos barefoot 
Yes, as part of our change the heart and that acknowledging country on January 26. That was it. Uh, you know, and, and you talk about the fact, well, underneath the concrete and underneath the floorboards and all that is country. And um, maybe there's something there as well. The need for us to get out barefoot a bit more often <laughs> to, to feel that That's right. genuine yep. um, it's connection. A, it's actually a, a re-seeing, a re-feeling, um, a re-learning um, and I guess that goes with our renewing. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, this is where people today often, you know, there's been lots of study and psychologists talking about intergenerational trauma that mm. Aboriginal peoples carry. On the flip side of that is that we carry um, intergenerational memory. And so uh, it was often talk about W.E.H. Stanner, that white male uh, anthropologist in 1968 in his Boyer Lectures, um, where he named it uh, that it, Australia practices a cult of forgetfulness and it's mm. practised on a national scale. Mm. Um, that's not us as Aboriginal peoples. We've never forgotten. We still, because those stories have been passed down from generation to generation uh, you know, I thought it was just me until I talked to some other uh, Aboriginal peoples. When we drive through the countryside, whether I'm driving through farmland or through a city with all its concrete, I'm always uh, imagining what was here before, like pre-colonisation, even as I look at the trees and even, you know, walking in my local neighbourhood um, uh, I've been looking at the gum trees and, you know, many people see a gum tree and like, oh, it's native to Australia but it might not belong to this area. Mm. And so I'm trying to work what is actually native to Wongal country, which tree belongs here and which one's been placed here um, against its will as well, in a mm. way. And, mm. uh, you know, I talked about that Western need for renaming, um, you know, it's tied up in capitalization uh, and it's also that paving over. And so for us as Aboriginal peoples, and this is where I hope non-Indigenous Christians can come and learn as well, it's to not see these things as progress and civilization. When you look at 300 nations living side by side, having been placed here by the creator for thousands of years, to look at those nations and, you know, the AATSIS Indigenous map of Australia gives us a good representation. It's not perfect. But to look at that map that this is uh, the most sophisticated societies the world has ever seen uh, because we've survived. That takes great sophistication um and civilization uh and so is it civilization that looks like capitalization or civilization that looks like obeying the rules the laws of the creator and caring for country all of country and so when you look at those roads and buildings and the renaming and the destruction what does that tell you as a non-indigenous christian about the relationship with the creator mm. and to just sit with that um and so, you know, my hope is that it would drive you to go, oh, what would it mean to have uh, an Aboriginal friend or to be led by Aboriginal peoples? Uh, and, you know, that doesn't need to be a physical friend. There's lots of great ways online and, and that's where, you know, it's great for people to connect with common grace as we amplify mm -hmm. the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Christian leaders. And, um, you know, that's a great way to build relationship is online these days as well. Again, you've sparked off in my head far more than we can address <laughs> in the time that we've got. Um, but just to touch on a couple of things, I'm wondering, and we might not go there, about future realignments of these lands we now call Australia um, in terms of governance and boundaries and, 
and so on. Uh, and probably the the step before that is renaming. Um, is it um, renaming of rivers? I can see as a as an easy achieve. Well, when I say easy, I mean relatively speaking. Um, and before I jump onto the next thing, um, how do you think that would that fits in with say what's happened in Aotearoa with the recognition of the personhood of a river? Is that something that you think would would and could and should happen in a, in in Australia in these lands we now call Australia? Yeah, renaming the Yarra back to its original name. What would be the benefit of that? Do you think in recognising its it's it being our neighbour, as you would say, or, or having a, a quote-unquote personhood. Yeah, I think there's probably two different um, aspects there. Um, in terms of the personhood, uh, I don't know exactly what's happened in Aotearoa. Um, uh, for me, if we, it's about creation um, and its identity as river, as life giver, um, you know, why did the colonizers take all of the water? Because they knew it gave life. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, they destroyed many of them, um, the waterways uh, for the sake of sheep and cattle who destroyed the land, the land that God had placed here beautifully. So you didn't have to, uh, if we use the word till it, um, uh, work it with great effort. And those beautiful stories that I've read in many journals of um beautiful but tragic of Aboriginal peoples looking at those first colonisers, invaders, settlers, um, as they were trying to do their farming and laughing at them. The Aboriginal people are sitting back on the tree laughing because they're doing all this hard work and, you know, you've got all the yam daisies growing just there in this beautiful soft soil, um, you know, so much that the creator gave them uh, that was here and um, could have been used instead of these harsh practices that, you know, have set us up for where we are today um, with limited resources and mm. uh, species, flora and fauna, um, you know, the fastest rates of extinction in the world um, here in Australia. Mm. And so, um, and sorry if that science isn't exactly right, but it's a, a great uh, acceleration of extinction yeah, of our flora and fauna over and the last 250 years. We're certainly world leaders in terms of uh, clearing trees. I got this from... Um, Oh, the Wilderness Society, I think, is that since colonisation, 50% of this continent's forests and bushland remain. So we've lost yep. at least 50% thereof. Um, right. I guess from in a Western legal framework, recognition of personhood gives legal rights. Hmm. And, and again, I know that's only part of the way if that's in a purely uh, Western system of recognition, Western laws. Hmm. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, given in the United States, for example, corporations have as much rights mm. as human beings. It's surely a step forward, even yep. though what I hear you saying, and I've read it before, is that um, globally we need to let Indigenous thought systems, belief systems challenge Western epistemology and ontology um, mm. and re-orient re, uh, them. Mm. And going back to the renaming, so, you know, um, uh, Ongana country, the place now called Adelaide, um, they do great at dual naming things mm. and it's about that shared history. So, you know, our names have been wiped from the Western consciousness, uh, but we've never forgotten. So let's um, at least have the dual names and, you know, then it's encompassing the whole history, the thousands years, not just 250 years. And it starts to... Um, you know, overturn this concept that Aboriginal peoples have not contributed to 
uh, modern day society. Mm. Uh, that's a misunderstanding of the last 250 years as well. You know, I talked about the sheep on the $50 note. And again, we go back to capitalization, but you've got um, uh, David Uniapon and you've got the little church in Ralkin. There's a church on our currency on a $50 note. Mm. But you also have, we call him the Aboriginal Leonardo da Vinci. He um, did the design for the motorised shearing shears that revolutionised uh, these lands now called Australia, but he wasn't credited with the design uh, because he was Aboriginal and not considered a citizen and only citizens could take out patents. And so it was a white man that took credit for that for um, 200 plus years. Uh, and so you know, we've contributed to the economics, modern day economics of this this country um, of Australia um, as well. And you go back and that's what I do all my work, looking at the original journals of those colonisers, invaders, settlers. And, um, you know, even Arthur Phillip, he documented Benelong teaching him about the economies, the families. That's an English word. He knew what he was seeing and what mm. Aboriginal people were doing was economy. Um, and economics. Uh, we were trading. Uh, we weren't that different. And so we still got a long way in overturning um, the story. We weren't hapless hunters and gatherers, wanderers, walking aimlessly across the lands. Uh, we were contributing um, and building um, society uh, for thousands of years and have continued over the last 250 there's certainly that ongoing debate, which we will not touch tonight over um, Uncle um, Bruce Pascoe's work and what counts as farming and, you know, what makes you an agriculturalist or, or what makes you engage in agriculture and so on. But the, um, and the destruction of the stone buildings, the stone housing, it's mm -hmm. like the, our, our cult of forgetfulness has not been a passive thing. Mm -mm. Uh, it, it started, at least started, if not continued with, with very active acts. And you see that happen Every time, um, just as a side, I used to read Quadrant many years ago when I thought it was an mm. intelligent thinking person's publication. And then we got the black arm armband history. Mm. Um, Hoo-ha. Mm. Anyway. Um, oh, just, just as another aside, I come from uh, where I spent most of my formative years is New Merca, which um, I think means war shield. So that's Yorta Yorta country. And so, you know, and, and a school magazine was called Bangarang. Mm. Um which is the, the the tribe in that area. So it's funny that they had that connection. I guess the only other thing I would say is we've talked about dual naming. Mm. Will will Melbourne cease to be Melbourne one day and become Nam? Will we see that? Would that be a desirable thing, do you think? I think there's probably, uh, it speaks to a deepening of relationship, a respect of relationship to, to go that far. Um, and that could be what it means to have actually reached that point of renewal. Mm. Uh, but I kind of, in a way, don't want to preempt that journey as well. Um, but it would be a sign of non-Indigenous people truly having relationship with us. And, um, uh, yes, I guess I leave that with people as, um, you know, each of us are responsible for our own journeys and taking those steps on journey. I encourage people to include Jesus uh, on that journey. And um, uh, I know that he walks, Jesus walks beside me each and every day um, through the reality of injustice and to walk softly and gently on country and to listen deeply. Um, and so that's what I encourage people to do, to listen, to learn and to love and to see what action that brings. And um, 
who knows? It could mean that one day it is only NAM. Um, but we should still, it's not an erasure of history. So mm. even if it was renamed NAM, it should still be remembered that for, I don't know when Melbourne was called Melbourne, what year that was. No, I don't either. Um, usually I would know these things. Uh, but, uh, you know, for this many years, this place was known as Melbourne. Today it is known as NAM as it was for thousands of years. Mm. And so it's how we actually tell our story. Absolutely. And what it means to tell what is the story of these lands now called Australia. I think at the very least um, there are probably some names that could be retired, Batman would be one, uh, yep. and Cook, by and large, would be another. Uh, I think we've got a lot of Cook towns and a lot of Cook this, that and the other, and uh, spending large sums of money on new statues of the man is not the best use of public funds, perhaps. No, uh, that's right, especially when these statues already exist. Wanting absolutely. to spend $50 million on a new statue, and, you know, that's also where I ask people to understand the depth of the relation, like to be in deep relationship with us. It is hard for me to drive through the Sutherland Shire and see cook, 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 cook everywhere mm. um, because I know when he came to the shores of that very area, uh, he didn't come in friendship. Uh, mm. On first seeing the Aboriginal peoples, he pulled out our, his gun and shot three times, wounding Cumin, um, the man Cumin, Gweagle man. And, uh, you know, we don't forget that. He could have come nicely on his boat and landed and tried to have conversation, but he didn't do that. No, and that attitude um, cost him in the end. Mm. And I, I know some, uh, you see all the time um, in social media that, that the appropriate time of year that's that's somewhat celebrated, which makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. But I, I you know, I kind of get that as well. So maybe a statue of Cumin and, and Ben Along and um, many many others more deserving of um, a place in the bigger narrative and that could be perhaps being encaptured in bronze or whatever else is appropriate. Well, I've got more here and um, we've touched upon some of it already. Um, so I think um, that's enough. <laughs> we've opened up a whole bunch of issues. I've had an enormous amount of fun. I always do when I talk to you, Yeah. Uh, but the fact that we've been so specific to hit these issues and I hope that, um, and not just because I want people to listen to my podcast, but of course I do. But I hope this goes far and wide because I think it is uh, an incredibly important conversation. And uh, we've touched upon these issues, you and I, over the years, but that's mm. probably the most comprehensive chat that we've had on it. Um, and I hope we can do it again. But I just think there's so much in there that um, certainly non-Indigenous people should should reflect upon. Yeah, no, thank you so much for saying that. And it's a great um, honour for me to be on this podcast. And um, I'm really grateful to you, Mick, as you uh, model that listening and that learning and um, you help to uh, challenge my thinking and go deeper as well. And um, I've really appreciated uh, your books and your humbleness to, to share and receive um, learning as well. And, um, you know, I do thank you for that. And I encourage people because uh, there might be some international listeners as well um, but also for those in Australia uh, in the Christian creation um, care space from uh, world Indigenous theologians um, just want to uh, also honour um, uh, Dr Randy Woodley and uh, Cheryl Bear uh, who have also been important theologians um, in my life and uh, those many Aboriginal Christian leaders that I've, I've also mentioned in our time together. So yeah, 
really uh, thank you and hope that this sparks many conversations right across these lands now called Australia and that together uh, we can uh, come together uh, to um, protect and restore our common home and country. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, listeners, once more. And as always, God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.